I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. No. They will forget. Hell does exist. God is a thought. God is an idea. It is a place. It is somewhere. Hell does exist. But its reference is to something that transcends all things. apart for this small question of religion. Quote, The present epoch is one of these critical moments in which the thought of mankind is undergoing a process of transformation. Two fundamental factors are at the base of this transformation. The first is the destruction of those religious, political, and social beliefs in which all the elements of our civilization are rooted the second is the creation of entirely new conditions of existence in thought as a result of modern scientific and industrial discoveries. The ideas of the past, although half destroyed, being still very powerful, and the ideas which are to replace them being still in the process of formation, the modern age represents a period of transition and anarchy. It is not easy to say as yet what will one day be evolved from this necessarily somewhat chaotic period. What will be the fundamental ideas on which the societies that are to succeed our own will be built up? We do not at present know. Still, it is already clear that on whatever lines the societies of the future are organized, they will have to count with a new power, with the last surviving sovereign force of modern times, the power of crowds. On the ruins of so many ideas formerly considered beyond discussion, and today decayed or decaying, of so many sources of authority that successive revolutions have destroyed, this power, which alone has arisen in their stead, seems soon destined to absorb all the others. While our ancient beliefs are tottering and disappearing, while the old pillars of society are giving way one by one, the power of the crowd is the only force that nothing menaces and of which the prestige is continually on the increase. The age we are about to enter will in truth be the era of crowds, end quote. That is from the introduction to a book written in 1895 called The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind by Gustave Le Bon. I'm here this morning with somebody that I've been in touch with for quite a while and whose work I have followed for, for an even longer period of time. I, I think I first read his book in 2008 or 2009. His name is John Robb, and his book is Brave New War. It is one of those books that was so far ahead of its time in describing the evolving nature of social phenomena, especially conflict, as a result of recent technological developments that it's practically a, a book of prophecy and way back in the middle of the Iraq war, John was talking about an emerging conflict environment where every combatant, at least if they're going to be effective, would have to be a sort of amateur analyst of complex systems. Technology 
had empowered individuals and small groups and social networks to such a degree that they now had the power to actually challenge nation states, which had been the apex predators of all human organizations for a long time by the mid-2000s. John pointed to how a few jihadists spent a few thousand dollars on flight lessons and box cutters and made the United States respond and respond very predictably by spending trillions and trillions of dollars and plunging ourselves into foreign and domestic conflicts that now in 2022 seem ready to tear us apart at the seams. So John Robb, uh, thanks for talking to us. I'm, I'm very excited about this interview. Uh, as I said, I've been a big fan for a long time. And I, I could be wrong about this, but back in 2016, I think, I think you had just kind of been doing the private citizen thing for quite a while. And as the blue swarm and the MAGA insurgency started coming into conflict in 2016, I, I reached out and messaged you as the first time we actually spoke. And I said, dude, this is your moment. Like, we really need your voice out there to help explain what's going on right now. And, and maybe you'd already planned on doing it, but I think you started Global Gorillas right after that. Um, so can you uh, start off by telling everybody a little bit about your background that prepared you to be able to read between the lines and see these tectonic movements beneath the surface of the daily news cycle? Wow. Um, what made me think the way I do? Well, um, I got involved in a lot of different things and, and uh, changed careers quite often, probably a lot more than most people. Started off Air Force Academy, astronautical engineering, engineering mindset. Um, astronautical engineering is a you know, complex topic and it, it gets, it's one of those things that kind of sets your mind in a certain kind of direction. Um, and my specialization in that was controls engineering which is the mindset associated with controls engineering has stayed with me forever. Um, then I got out and f flew and I ended up in special ops, uh, tier one special ops unit, uh, you know, flying night vision goggles and landing on roads and garden spots around the world. And that was a kind of uh, non-military experience, uh, you know, kind of uh, looking at the world from the outside, um, moving around undetected, uh, you know, giving somebody gave me a plane and 20,000 bucks and I would go do something for a couple of weeks and come back. You, you just didn't get that in the military for the most part. Um, and the self-reliance opportunistic uh, make do with what you have uh, no direction. And then, um, so it gave me kind of a viewpoint from being on the outside. And then uh, I ended up, you know, after getting a master's ended up as a analyst a tech analyst, for some strange reason, I ended up at Forrester Research in 95, and um, which was the kind of the tech, Uber tech research company that dominated the tech research um, on the, about the internet. And I was their lead guy. And <laughs> for some reason, they liked my stuff. And, and um, I wrote a lot, a lot of reports and I met every single Silicon Valley company that was launching between 95 and 97, um, wrote reports on this environment. And I kind of developed a style. My style of writing happened to be Forrester style, which is a kind of a paragraph bullet, bullet, bullet approach. But um, to build the, I, the thing that kind of uh, structured it for me was I built frameworks. Frameworks for helping decision makers deal with rapidly changing environments. So you had the internet changing everything. 
And some people would say it's not changing or I, or I can't move because it's changing so quickly. Um, I would provide them a framework for understanding how things are going to roll out. And those frameworks were not necessarily, you know, a full analytic product because there's so many things are in motion. Um, they were just a, a way to view the world. And, and, and as the news came in, you could, you could, you had cubby box, cubby holes for it. You, you could sort it and make sense of it. Um, and, Decision makers love that. So I ended up with, you know, hundreds of quotes in the media, like Wall Street Journal, New York Times every week kind of thing, and um, sold about a five million a year in research, which is kind of nice. Always Got me into thing. the, yeah. And that exposure to the, you know, the, the Silicon Valley mindset combined with my special ops stuff got me into starting companies. So I worked on building organizations and the first one out of the box, we got to about 150 employees, 50 million in revenue ended up being sold for just a little under 300 million. Um, it was in the finance space. It did a performance testing network. So I built a big system that was in 50, 50 cities globally, six continents, pinging the transaction systems of banks and brokerages around the world every five minutes. Um, massive amounts of data, you know, building something that worked. And I did it in, again in the printing industry. And in 2001, I ended up uh, trying to realize one of the reports I wrote back in 96, which was um, called Personal Broadcast Networks, which was about this idea that we would broadcast, you know, publish our own stuff and people would subscribe to it. And, you know, you do posts and pictures and things like that. And, you know, everybody was like coming to talk to me about it and say, how do you build this? And like Andreessen and, and uh, uh, the other folks in all the big companies, Microsoft came to talk to me about it. How do you build it? I go, I have some ideas, but it's still formative. And um, in 2001, I found a company, Userland Software, that was doing that. So I thought, okay, why don't I take control of the situation and, and kind of launch social networking, make it go, make realize that the promise of the report. And um, Userland had had uh, RSS. You know, we I joined it, ended up running the company. Um, Dave Weiner was, you know talented visionary programmer that was working with me. And uh, we did almost everything that you see now in, in modern social networking is stuff that we kind of built. And there was like maybe a couple hundred of us doing social networking back then. Um, and um, RSS, which is a really simple syndication and, and getting that launched, getting those new ideas launched changed my thinking, you know, it's like you could see it and you explain what social networking was. And then everyone would look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> you know, I was like, what the hell are you doing? And, um, and why would I ever want to publish anything online or even post anything? That's just, and people were scared to even do that with their blogs. They, were, they had their uh, fake names on it. And so um, I started, you know, building blogs early as a result of that, because we were networking blogs. Um, so you got a, a feed that looked just like your Twitter feed through RSS back in 2001 and two, and Twitter was in like 2007, right? So it was like a really early thing. Um, so I had the experience launching stuff, selling new ideas, seeing them early and seeing how hard it is to get people to get their heads around it. And then the Iraq war happened and um, I started a blog, Global Gorillas, and I started working on the outside <laughs> and I saw patterns in that conflict that resonated with me. It's the combination of my military experience, my software experience, and seeing what open source software was doing. And um, 
that kind of combination, that synthesis, and kind of a Boyd way of thinking of it, um, led me to come up with a bunch of ideas as to how this new world of conflict is, was developing. And um, like open source warfare and systems disruption, which is different than sabotage because you're analyzing complex systems, finding that one weak point that if you hit it, that it would cause a cascade of, of, of damage. And that we were so reliant on these systems now, much more than back in World War II, that that would have measurable consequences. And then um, ended up writing the book, Brave New War, and that got really popular with the CIA, NSA, DOD, all the branches, um, everyone doing stuff you know, related to terrorism and warfare around the world. Did a lot of consulting and speaking on that. And... Um, Finally, ended up writing the Global Guerrillas Report back in 2016 when I saw that open source framework go from insurgency in Iraq to the big protest movements that swept uh, Tunisia and then Egypt. And then and we saw them in the U.S. with the, the Occupy movement and the Tea Party and others were using that thing. And then we saw it in uh, Nomasa uh, FARC back in Colombia, we saw it in, uh, in uh, Ricky Renuncia in, in, in Puerto Rico, we saw these protest movements, and then we saw it open source framework come to the politics in the US. And that was the secret behind how Trump got into the office, um, because it was an open source framework. Um, and he used systems disruption through rapidly changing topics and, and constantly throwing out disruptions to keep the opposition from being able to make cogent decisions. So um, anyway, I started the report, which is a, at the intersection of politics, warfare, and technology, and um, kind of capture that thinking as it now is like enveloped the world. We're seeing this, all the, the ideas that came about early kind of emerging in, in full force right now and putting the whole world at risk. So did that, did I I do a good job with that? It's like, yeah, that was great. And um, yeah, I just warn everybody right now, this is not going to be a happy podcast. The, uh, a recent interview that John gave uh, to Jack Murphy is what prompted me to finally reach out and get this interview done. And it was just one of the scariest things I've ever heard. And so we're going to cover some of that today. I have have one quick question um, about something you just said. When you look back at uh, say the protest movements of the like late sixties, you know, the 1968 year where you have this eruption in Paris, France and in university campuses in America and Mexico city, and even in a different ideological direction in uh, Czechoslovakia, for example, and other parts of the Eastern Bloc. Um, does what we're seeing today, these, the, the, these networked open source movements differ in kind from what we were used to from back then, or is it just an acceleration of some of the things that television and radio and the printing press and so forth allowed us to do before, but, but now it, it evolves much more rapidly and can expand much more quickly. Yeah. I, th- I think there's some major differences uh, <clears throat> with what we're seeing now we're, we're, we're the mechanism is different. You know, a lot of those earlier protests were organized and they had a kind of a hierarchical structure to the organizations that put them together and made them happen. Um, and and in, insurgency movements were organized. They were typically mirrors of the nation state, but in hiding. So you had a political wing, an economics wing, et cetera. Um, you know, what we see with open source structures is that uh, 
it brings together groups from across the spectrum, meaning that, uh, uh, you know, people that would not agree with each other at all um, and potentially even shoot at each other, other if they were in close proximity, um, they would come together to work on achieving a goal. And, and that goal in, in open source terms is a plausible promise. It's a, it's a very simple goal uh, that they all can agree on. Um, and what I mean by plausible is that it was demonstrated through some action uh, to be viable, that it has a chance of succeeding. And when it does that, this thing grows and it, and it mobilizes in days uh, versus like, you know, a, a protest move in the 60s would take or insurgency in the 60s would take forever. It take years to kind of gestate and then grow and 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 build, um, and it's not just a kind of a wild riot either. Um, like a riot can go instantaneously. Uh, this is directed, you know. This has a this has an objective, um, and you, you saw that in Egypt. It's like Mubarak has to go, he has to go, he has to go, he has to go, um, and that's the kind of thing that uh, makes it more coherent and, and, and cohesive. Um, and I think the reason for that is you go back to the technological changes that we've had. And uh, I, I've read a lot of McLuhan and I take, he has a lot of fluff out there that people tend to focus on like the hot and cool media kind of stuff. But the real stuff that matters is how uh, we've been rewired by our interaction with technology. Our brains have re- been rewired and, um, and that changes the way we think and process information and how we relate to each other. And then eventually that has changes, changes the way we make decisions socially. And that's what we're seeing is that kind of, we've been rewired, society is changing and um, it's reorganizing itself to fit that rewire. That gets at one of my uh, questions uh, about how much of this is really the result of human agency uh, and how much is simply made inevitable by technological change. I remember about 15, maybe 10 or 15 years ago when reports of China's emerging surveillance based social credit system began popping up consistently in the Western press. And I would have conversations with people about that same question. And I would think of the earlier example of the industrial revolution and uh, an example that came to mind is how it impacted agriculture. And once the powered machine was invented, it made possible these huge economies of scale, these industrial farms based on the use of heavy machinery. And the efficiency of, of these large enterprises was such that the price of many crops dropped to a point where they could only be really grown profitably at scale. And so gradually, and then more quickly, the industrial farms start swallowing up all the smaller family farms. And you get a much right. smaller percentage of the population involved in agriculture. They're moving into the cities to work in the factories. Now, if you look at the Soviet Union in the 1930s, and this is obviously very relevant to uh, the current crisis in Ukraine, which we're going to talk about. Stalin decided that if the USSR didn't radically accelerate this process, then it wasn't going to be able to keep up with its enemies who were further along in this process of industrialization. So he begins this brutal program that we all know about of forced collectivization, which is a fancy way of really just saying that independent farmers were being pushed off their land to go work in the factories in the cities, at least the ones that survived. In the process, millions of people were killed, but in the end, the USSR had made that transition to this more modern system of industrial agriculture with a much smaller proportion of the population engaged in growing food. Well, at the same time that Stalin, excuse me, is driving, 
Well, at the same time that Stalin is driving the Holodomor in the 1930s, millions of independent farmers are being driven off their land in the United States as well, uh, driven off their farms into the cities where they went looking for work after they lost their land to the bank during the Great Depression. Over here, we didn't have secret police and military forces hammering us through the process, but it was, you know, it was an armed sheriff who would show up to your land to throw you out if you decided you weren't going to give up your multi-generation family farm just because of some temporary disturbance in the global economy. In other words, the requirement to transition to industrialized agriculture was baked in as soon as the technology was invented to make it possible, simply because any state that didn't embrace it was not going to be able to compete with the states that did. Uh, there's a technological imperative that overcame even the huge differences between the Soviet and Western economies. And so what the Soviets did by force, we did by more subtle means, though still backed by force. Um, but at the end of the day, things could only flow in one direction because the technology made it inevitable. Um, getting back to the China example, when I was discussing the surveillance and social credit system with people 10 or 15 years ago, I brought up this example of industrialized agriculture for comparison, and I worried at the time that the new digital telecommunications technology was so powerful and its internal logic so consistent that what China was doing by force at the time, we would inevitably follow in a, in a manner that seemed more voluntary, but that at the end of the day was just as inevitable as the transition to industrial agriculture. And the term I used at the time was do-it-yourself totalitarianism, DIY totalitarianism. So it sounds like you kind of agree with that perspective on it about the irresistible internal logic of these powerful technologies. And, and, and so if that's the case, what are, we, what are we in for as these technologies become even more and more integrated into our personal and social and political lives? Right. So um, the trend is obviously that, that networking technology will be in every portion of our life. It's already, you know, impossible to, to be modern without being online and connected. Um, if you've ever tried being disconnected, it's, <laughs> you know, for extended period of time, you'll find it's like impossible to get things done. I mean, everything from, you know, booking flights to, uh, to getting a job, to getting a date, to just normal communication and keeping track of people. Uh, you need email, you need, uh, you need access to the web, you need all these things in order to get things done. And then what's coming with AR and VR, uh, you know, everybody's going to have a camera in their glasses. It's, it's almost inevitable. Now the Google lens stuff is over. It's coming. It's coming. Um, and um, it's going to get in our perceptual loop. So uh, you can modify uh, with digital technology, what you see and what you hear uh, down to the individual level. You can add mods and add capabilities and it can change what you see and, 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 and um, in many cases make it better. If you want to learn how to do something, it would overlay how to do it, how to repair something. Um, that's something tangible and valuable, uh, but it, uh, it's going to be extremely disruptive. It's going to be in that space. So we have all that stuff integrated down and that it's an incredible amount of power. And um you know, if you look back at the 20th century, we were discussing that just a second ago is a, uh, in my view, it was a big battle. The whole of the 20th century was the last great battle of the nation states. I mean, the apex predators of, of the last 500 years that kind of evolved organisms. They're, they're massive. Uh, they distinguish themselves by their ability to uh, mobilize for total warfare. And, you know, 
And there were, you know, three different systems, three different mechanisms for doing that. There was, uh, you know, the, the communist system, one big bureaucracy runs everything. And then there was uh, uh, fascism, which is a government bureaucracy that directs corporations, which pretty much did all the work, but they forced all the corporations to point in the same direction and the population to point in the same direction. Um, so kind of decentralized the bureaucratic overhead by giving these corporations the capability to do that, um, but tightly controlled them in terms of what the direction was. So there was less competition, more negotiation uh, between corporations. They didn't want like heavy competition. And then you had the U.S. approach, which has a government bureaucracy that kind of picked up from did what the corporations weren't willing to do for their bottom line, and then bounded the corporations in this big corral or big field and let them do, you know, compete uh, aggressively. Uh, but that bounding, that those limitations, you know, kept it um, relatively civil, right? The legal commercial codes and all that other stuff. Big question going into World War II is whether a democracy could mobilize. Right. And Roosevelt solved that by saying, OK, the, I figured out how to get a democracy to mobilize is that you make it worth the, You make it profitable. Right? You throw enough money at these guys, they're going to turn heaven and earth and, and, and mobilize and get those, get those weapons built. So. Um, what that big fight ended up telling us is that there were you know, eventually one system, the democratic system, it was the best way to organize an economy and organize a government for controlling society um, that, that had won out over the long term. Um, and that uh, then we get to this global environment and this global environment started to, you know, those big apex predators started losing control. They started uh, can, losing control. Can I, can I ask you one question yep. real quick? Sorry to interrupt, um, but I, I don't want to lose this thought. And I tend to do that quite a bit if I, if I don't jump in. Um, yeah. Do you think that the decentralized nature of liberal democracy in that great battle of the 20th century with communism and fascism. Right. Uh, do you think that we took the right lesson from the outcome of that conflict? Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, obviously like the, the lesson we took is, is the way you just described it, that this decentralized mode of organization is uh, more efficient and adaptable and, and so forth than the others um, to mobilize for total warfare. Uh and maybe also, I would say, for uh, for for uh, providing social dampeners to avoid revolutions, maybe that would overthrow the system. Um, uh, but was that uh, it, was that like the appropriate lesson, or was the lesson that uh, the side of the democracies happened to have this 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 gigantic power called the United States, which was you know def- completely defended, had no threat to its own homeland, and had a massive population that it could mobilize on the side of the liberal democracies like what do, you, what do you think about that yeah i mean there's structural factors that let it because this be is kind successful. of the question that people are asking today about the chinese uh kind oh, of yeah. pseudo capitalism right like right 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 but okay so ultimately it was more innovative yeah and and yeah. so that innovation you know what one thing with a central planner a bureaucrat is great at allocating resources uh, but they're bad at taking speculative bets. I mean, they can fund a lot of research, but something that doesn't make sense, like putting PCs on everybody's desk. I mean, why would anyone, why would any bureaucrat ever fund that? This doesn't make any sense and uh, to them. And so, uh, you know, that kind of thing, or, or even developing a nuclear weapons the way we did, um, you know, we were more open and inclusive. We got the, the scientists that we needed to do that. Um, and um 
It's not that our educational system was, was that much better. It was just the way the system worked. So I think though that value and, it, and being the U.S. being separate allowed us the structural uh, advantages necessary to survive kind of that initial onslaught of a fast mobilization that, that the communism could, could muster. They couldn't overwhelm us because there was, you know, these oceans and we had nukes. Um, problem is, is that the lesson that we learned, we thought we learned at the end of the Cold War was that, you know, this system is good for all time, and, but the conditions changed. So technology changed globalization happened. And um, when the environment changes, you have to adapt and come up with new things. And the one thing we learned about this new environment is that it is complex, meaning that uh, complicated solutions, you know, engineered solutions don't always work and they don't work against this environment. And it throws off these challenges and disruptions at a constant rate. Um, You know, you get terrorism coming out of left field, you get, you get financial panics, you get uh, COVID, you get all these things, just boom, 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 boom. And it, per- you know, supply disruptions. Um, and it's unclear whether uh, democratic capitalism uh, is effective in that. And so, you know, what Wang Hening did in China, which is kind of the, arch- he's the kind of the architect of, from my perspective, he's the architect of, 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 the Chinese approach to this is that um, there's two approaches going into this complex environment is that it will rip, rip you apart internally, the stresses of this environment. Um, like it's like, a, like an aircraft with a bad control system. You know, if you if you built it for high performance, uh, that control system on an aircraft, like a F-16 has to make a correction every three seconds. You know, the computer changes the, uh, the control surfaces every three seconds beyond what the pilot does in order to stop it from falling apart, ripping apart, tumbling. Um, and so the control system that, the, that's uh, needed for this environment um, to avoid that kind of internal destruction and kind of what we're experiencing right now uh, can be one of two things. It could be these top-down control like China's doing where uh, it uses network power to insert itself into the perceptual stream of everybody. And um, you incentivize certain things and you lock down the kind of core morality of the system, which is like Confucianism applied uh, forcibly to people through these uh, incentives and other things. Um, they're you know, using that centralized approach to kind of deal with this constant stream of disruption. And then what I'm hoping to see in the West is... Um, you know, we have this dynamic kind of network, you know, and it's like out of control, but it's able to mobilize, you know, amazingly quickly. Uh, the debate moves quickly. The, the uh, ideas move quickly, but it's not bounded. It's not, it doesn't have any um, uh, controls in place to prevent it from becoming nonlinear, from doing something really, really stupid and breaking things apart, killing us all. And, um, you know, there are things we could do. Like I was, I got in front of the Senate last, last year and I advised, uh, you know, Hey, we need digital rights and digital data ownership and things like that. Those kind of simple things that, that would kind of ground the system a little bit and slow it down. Um, protections against what corporations would do to us because the constitution doesn't have any protections against uh, corporate overreach. I mean, they can just disconnect us because um, they don't like us. Yeah. And they don't have any given any justification for doing so. Um, 
So learning what those boundary conditions should be is, you know, what we should be focused on, but we don't seem to be able to do that. Um, you know, we're, we're letting the system just run amok. Before I uh, interrupted you last time, you started to talk about uh, apex predator theory, which was a subject. This was absolutely just a, a, a brilliant analogy. I don't know if you came up with it yourself for this global gorillas report, but it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, this idea of apex predator populations providing stability that allows an ecosystem to flourish and that when you remove those apex predators, uh, you know, you start to have cascading effects that go all the way down to like the shrubs along the river and so forth. Uh, and you use that to talk about the decline of authority and legitimacy and the hollowing out of nation states, which again, were the, were the apex predator of all human organizations up until very, very recently. And um, so tell us about apex predator theory, because this, this is a great way to lead into um, something you started to talk about near the end there. Tell us about apex predator theory and how we can learn something from it about the changes we're seeing in domestic and internal politics and power relations. Yeah, um, there's a set of concepts from uh, you know, ecological theory, uh, this apex predator theory and, and trophic cascades are some of the terms that you'll, you'll see. Um, the idea is that uh, apex predators serve as a uh, control system for an ecosystem, <clears throat> and that uh, they keep what what's called the meso predators, the, the secondary tier of, of predators, like uh, wolves would keep coyotes and uh, foxes and other meso predators under control, and that. Uh, they in turn, you know, between their predation and, and the mesopredator predation would keep the prey populations that would eat, you know, the herbivores that would, you know, eat the grasses and, and the shrubs under control. And that uh, that environment works good until you take out the apex predator. And when you take out the apex predator, you hunt it to extinction, you remove it, it dies off for some reason, um, chaos ensues. And so the mesopredator population explodes they overhunt. There's too few uh, herbivores left. And um, all of a sudden you get uh, changes in the environment. You, you get you know, diseases, you get, uh, or the uh, uh, mesopredator population you know, overshoots and declines. And then you get, a, you know, the herbivores and the prey populations explode and they overgraze and then they cause erosion and, and, and destruction of ecosystems. So, um, one of the cool things is that the apex predators have a, a, a lot of social controls in terms of how they operate. They take, you know, they have few young and they raise them slowly. And there's a lot of, you know, competitive dynamics and everything else that keeps their populations relatively small and um, high quality. Meso predators, on the other hand, have no such controls. They're uh, very opportunistic. So when you take the pressure from the apex predator off the mesopredator population, they just go boom. You know, they just eat everything, you know, uh, breed uncontrollably um, and, and, you know, propagate everywhere and then cause this whole cycle of, of, of chaos. So applying it to nation states, we have nation states, the apex predator, it has, you know, a lot of social controls of how they operate. We have, you know, constitutions and, and, and other documents controlling them, legal systems, uh, controls for how they interact with each other. You know, they have the UN and, and international treaty structures and everything else. It's very, very controlled. 
So when they start declining, hollowing out, weakening, because this globalization and technological shift, um, now you have this mesopredator explosion. I mean, you, and corporations are one of the mesopredators. They're always been a competitor with the state and they are gaining power and they're not working on in our interest. You know what I mean? They have a, a different set of goals. They're not bounded. They don't have any constitutional structures or rights protections or, or we don't have any ownership rights relative to them. Um, it's whatever they can get away with. Um, and then you have uh, network movements, another mesopredator that's just exploding. Um, and uh, we see that in, you know, these networks that spring up overnight and, and, and attack an individual or attack uh, an organization. Um, and uh, so we're in that kind of environment right now where we have this uh, mesopredator explosion, what they call a trophic cascade. It's like everything is breaking down as it, as it cascades through the system. Um, so that, yeah, that's what I was working on right now. And, or in that report is kind of explaining that environment and, um, you know, the situation we find ourselves in right now with a mesopredator explosion and, um, you know, how we get to grips, you know, come to grips with this and how do we get our arms around it? Um, I, I think it's such a perfect analogy uh, talking about how the apex predators and mesopredators have what are essentially different evolutionary strategies, right? When you're at the top, if you just eat everything you see and consume every resource that you possibly can and breed as much as you can, then you're going to destroy the environment because you're so powerful. You're at the top. You're going to destroy the, you know, you're going to saw off the branch you're sitting on. Whereas when you are somewhere in the middle, you're a coyote as opposed to a wolf pack, you got to eat what you can, when you can have as many babies as you can. It's just a completely different evolutionary strategy. And so you think about like corporations as the coyotes in this analogy, you know, we, we, you have these you have these uh, discussions like between right wing and left wing economics people right they say every all, everybody on the left wants corporations to have a sort of social conscience and morality and but we just didn't design the institution that way that the institution is designed in such a way that its job is to go out there and maximize profit for its investors and any controls that need to be placed on that were supposed to be the responsibility of the nation state you know, right, to right. set those boundaries. And that way the, the corporations could just go full speed ahead trying to do what they needed to do based on their structure. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect analogy. And uh, one of the things that, you know, I find interesting is, you know, when the nation state was the apex predator, you know, simply because we were, the technology was such that if you were going to be a competitive geopolitically, you had to, have, you know, bomber fleets, you had to have like a big Navy, and there's only really one mode of social organization at the time that was capable of fielding those kind of things. And so they became dominant, but especially in, uh, you know, in, in the United States, I think in, in, you know, the Anglosphere in general, maybe somewhat less in Europe, but to, to the degree to which um, that structure became dominant, the nation state absorbed a lot of the a lot of the functions of what were some of the middle tier institutions that were sort of bottom up, say churches or just local community institutions, a lot of their functions got absorbed by the nation state and those institutions, those intermediate structures of power and identity, those intermediate institutions were sort of hollowed out so that now when we come to a point where the nation state itself is being hollowed out and delegitimized, 
the field is just kind of clear for, uh, you know, the cartels or the corporations or the militias or these uh, organized uh, open source social networks that have proliferated and, and grown up in power. And, you know, like maybe you, you, you might imagine that in, uh, you know, say 150 years ago, if the nation state took, took a big hit for whatever reason, just some exogenous hit that delegitimized and hollowed it out in a way we're seeing today, you might, you might imagine that at the time, maybe local community structures and maybe the church or something like that would have been powerful enough to maybe place some checks on, say, what corporations would then do in the absence of the nation state setting those boundaries. But today, it's, it's just that's just those those guardrails are really not there. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, there is a, there is a kind of a, a approach right now where you're, you're seeing networks. Attempting to set a moral structure for, you know, and, and um, thing is that the way these networks, these tribal networks build uh, and form themselves is that they uh, uh, can't agree. They can't get people to come together based on what they're for, but the way they're doing it is, is, is defining a pattern for what they're against. So a racist, a colonialist, uh, uh, misogynist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, by defining the negative, they can get all the people in their tribe to agree. And, uh, that's how they're enforcing behavior standards. And, um, saying, you know, why do you have to go to church or and all these other stuff when, when we're taking many lessons, what we consider the best lessons out of that and, and applying it to daily life. Um, and so, it, yeah, there's, there's no grounding. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's no, it, you know, kind of, uh, across history, you know, or, you know, mystical grounding to this It's like, it's all, in practice, all through networks, all through social social factors. In uh, in your recent Global Gorillas report called uh, "Swarms versus Nukes," you make the point that this current crisis in Ukraine, however it began as a traditional proxy conflict between nation states, very very quickly turned into essentially a global insurgency against Putin's Russia. Um, this open source insurgency involves players from global corporations to Twitter addicted housewives and everybody in between. And it took really no time at all. I mean, absolutely no time at all for this network swarm to form up and go way past the sanctions regime imposed by the U.S. and our allies on Russia. You know, in the past, right. we've seen this network swarm attack uh, Supreme Court nominees or sexual harassers in Hollywood and even a president of the United States. But now the swarm has turned its sights on a nuclear powered nation state. And it sort of feels like, you know, in, in video game terminology, like the final boss in the battle for sovereignty. Because if a nuclear armed nation state can't defend itself against this network swarm, then nothing can. Um, right. can, can. Can you sketch the outline of this conflict and describe some of the characteristics of this, of this swarm and how its behaviors differ from? how nation states have behaved and related to each other in the last couple of centuries. Yeah. There's a couple of different ways to approach this is a, well, okay. We had this piece for the last 80 years, 75 years, actually, uh, because of a nuclear stalemate. Okay. Made large scale conventional warfare of the type we saw in world war one and two impossible. Uh, You know, if it, if we went there, modern life would end. Um, and so uh, 
in order to survive that, we had to develop a set of protocols and conventions uh, for interacting with each other. Uh, if you have the capacity to, you know, kill all life on earth, you have to interact with each other uh, on, a, on a, a very formal basis. Um, you don't provoke each other too aggressively. Uh, you don't go too close to the other one, uh, you know, the other states that have that kind of capability. Um, and, uh, you know, we kind of uh, got used to it. You know, the Cold War ended, we thought, hey, this is all over. But, you know, <clears throat> the reality is, is that the uh, Russia still has more nukes than anyone else on the planet. They have 6,000 nukes and the U.S. has about 5,000. Um, China has about 300. And any one of those three uh, have enough nukes to, you know, damage a huge percentage of the planet. And, um, you know, bring the war global. So, uh, you know, we got into this conflict uh, with Putin and, um, you know, due, due to the invasion of Ukraine. And uh, what happened is that uh, these networks that we'd seen in action over the last, uh, you know, five years or so really coming into, or actually since 2004, when I was tracking it with global gorillas back in, um, starting with Iraq, uh, became these, this massive new force on the global scene. Um, and, um, you know, we, we saw the trajectory. I mean, I wrote back last year when uh, we saw a network disconnect Trump, a sitting U.S. president, right? Basically disconnecting him from social, all social networking um, and his supporters from social networking. And, you know, even if they weren't on those social networks, they disconnected the supporting networks, uh, the way they got rid of parlor and, you know, get rid of the email, get rid of their, their cloud status, uh, a wholesale disconnection of the purportedly the, the most powerful person on the planet. Um, and there was no repercussions um, and there was no, uh, no way of stopping it. And effectively by disconnecting Trump from the social network, it makes him a non-viable candidate. You are no longer a participant in this political process. So, um, we saw the kind of writing on the wall. And then when this event hit, you know, we saw this network swarm develop um, and it had a very distinctive uh, ramp that, you know, based on the dynamics of open source conflict that I, I tracked, um, the net result is that uh, it focused on Russia and Putin as, as the main foe and it disconnected them. And so in less than a week, it turned Russia, uh, fully integrated uh, part of the global community uh, into uh, effectively North Korea, isolated. Um, and in so doing, they took a regional conflict or even a sub-regional conflict, this war in Ukraine, out, outside of NATO, um, outside of EU, uh, and uh, turned it into a global conflict. So a network grew this. And the, the problem is that a lot of the Western leaders thought that they kind of did it, that they led it, that they, they have, they don't quite understand what they saw, what they did. They thought by their amazing leadership on this, you know, in this conflict that they were able to muster the support, you know, for the millions of decision makers uh, to kind of jump in and, and make decisions to, you know, disconnect Russia and Russians. Um, and um, that was, it's not the case at all. It's a, it's a, they were just participating in this larger network action. They were just like cogs. And as long as they were moving that, that network forward towards this goal, uh, they were accepted as conditional leaders. 
but the, they can't turn it off and uh, they can't, there's no, there's no on off button in terms of connecting Russia. Uh, again, if there's some kind of peace deal, um, this is, this is you know, totally out of control is completely non-linear in this regard. Um, we can go over the dynamics of how this ramped and then maybe over uh, uh, what the, the possible promise of this is. Yeah. Um, I, real quick, I, your description of these network swarms brings uh, two things to mind. Uh, first one is that it reminds me very much of cult dynamics I spent a lot of time researching cult behavior for a long podcast series I did on Jonestown. And one of the things I came away with was a definition of a cult as a social organization that cuts itself off from the outside world, from outside influence, and and simultaneously creates its own world where goods like status and self-esteem are distributed according to one's loyalty to the group, basically, which may be expressed by devotion to a leader or strict adherence to group principles, uh, but very often by exhibiting more hostility to the group's enemies than the person next to you. Um, And it becomes this sort of self-reinforcing cycle. You know, it kind of reminds me of those videos that we would see of North Koreans grieving in the wake of Kim Jong-il's death, where you'd have these people who were absolutely hysterical on the street, beating themselves with their fists, beating their fists and their heads on on the concrete, and I, I remember watching those and thinking, you know, I can imagine in a country like North Korea where suspicion and guilt are basically the same thing, treated as the same thing, that each of those people in that situation has an eye on the person next to him to see how hard he's crying. And he thinks maybe unconsciously, you know, if he's crying, then I better scream. And the person next to him thinks, well, if he's screaming, then I better hit myself in the face because nobody wants to be the person exhibiting the least amount of grief for the dear leader, even if everybody is showing an an insane amount of grief. And so they enter into this escalating spiral until all of them are just maxing out whatever they think is the most extreme and convincing means of showing their grief, right? Right. And and a a more familiar context, um, I think we see the same thing happen with with groups based on and, and any group based on ideological affinity, I think this is always a danger. A group based on ideological affinities always in danger of devolving into cults. When we look at like the late '60s, really radical groups like the Symbionese Liberation Army or the Weathermen, and you, you really get into their internal dynamics. It's it's hard to tell the difference between them and what we would traditionally call a cult. Um, but in our society today, nobody wants to be the one suspected of being the least tolerant of say non-standard sexual relations. Uh, n- nobody in 2008, you could place yourself comfortably in the middle of the herd just by being pro gay marriage. But once gay marriage was normalized, it didn't confer the same benefits. Right. Most, most Republican politicians today uh, these days are at least publicly in favor of gay marriage. So if you're part of a progressive affinity group, you have to now embrace say the normalization of, of transsexuals. And, you know, as they say in America, conservatism is just liberalism driving the speed limit. So presumably you look at the way things are are probably going before long, the middle of the country's going to, you know, it it accepts the basic normalization of trans rights. And so now you have to move even further out to maybe normalizing trans children or the takeover of women's sports by trans men. And, And that becomes the marker. And, you know, I think God forbid, if, if these things are ever securely normalized, uh, by its very nature, this blue network will have to move on to the next thing. I hesitate to speculate uh, what that might be. Um, 
so yeah, now we have this crisis going on in Ukraine. And for the first time, really, we're seeing this, this swarm, this global open source mass for, formation network organizing in opposition to a powerful nuclear nation state. Um, you know, there have been maybe sort of some similar attempts in the past, like maybe with apartheid South Africa or the BDS movement against Israel. But but certainly what we're seeing now feels different. The mimetic spiral around the organizing principle of opposition to the Russian invasion, it, it, it escalated almost overnight from opposing the war to exhibiting public hatred for Russian people, you know, universities banning books and Russian athletes banned from the Paralympics. To Senator Mitt Romney, you know, accusing Tulsi Gabbard of treason for, for questioning the narrative, uh, right. others calling for her and Tucker Carlson to be arrested, to now what we see from many prominent social media personalities, people uh, like congressmen like Adam Kinzinger, uh, who, who go out there and show their bona fides by declaring their readiness for nuclear war. It just accelerated so rapidly, and, and it seems like that is built into the structure of these networks. Right, yeah, I- I initially speculated about well, maybe two years ago that we would see something like this, a swarm go after Israel for Gaza and that it would ignite and there would be this rapid mass disconnection of Israel. And that's what, you know, I didn't foresee the Ukrainian invasion, you know, being the trigger two, three years ago, but Israel can, you know, could have become a, a fully disconnected pariah state overnight through the right kind of you know, uh, dynamics being done online to create a swarm. Um, you know, I, I, I do see a, a little bit of the cult behavior, but I, I attribute it more to tribalization. So, um, you know, the, 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 di- the way this thing grew and, you know, uh, has, you know, certain stages. Uh, when Putin initially did the invasion, the first people to kind of overreact get, or, you know, get, hyper about it were the people that were in the resistance in a network, the, the opposition to Trump. And forever they've been talking about the Russian threat, you know, the tie Trump, you know, hatred for Trump to, to hatred to Putin together. Um, they're, you know, the same to them. Um, and that, uh, you know, Putin's been in, you know, involved in our elections. He's like manipulating everything, you know, vastly overblowing the, the threat or the Russian contribution. I mean, I live in social networking and, and, and I breathe it. And, and the hundred million page views that they got for some advertising is dwarfed by the billions of page views that even just YouTube alone gets every day. You know, it's like, it, it's just, a, it's, and it was ham-fisted. It was terrible. So anyway, they, they kicked into action and um, they immediately started demonizing, you know, and then saying, this is the ultimate evil. Uh, and Putin's act, you know, it's proving them right. That he was the ultimate evil, um, an evil actor behind all our all our uh, disruption with with Trump, um, and that um, then the invasion was designed. You know, uh, the Russian invasion was designed with mobility in mind, um, and they we were minimizing civilian disruption, and it was just a terrible plan to begin with. But the um, that kept the networks open, and so all of this data and pictures and, and other things associated with what's going on on the ground uh, started flowing out and it provided uh, the fodder for em- what I call empathy triggers. So both the people inside Ukraine, but mostly the people in the <laughs> resistance network took the pictures and, and posts from people on the ground in Ukraine 
and turn them into empathy triggers to uh, grow the opposition, grow this network, grow this swarm. And what I mean by empathy triggers is, is that um, empathy isn't what you, isn't, isn't, uh, you know, sympathy. And uh, it is a involuntary modeling of somebody's mindset. So um, it's kind of a pre-verbal form of communication. So when you saw somebody in your tribe uh, being attacked, you could model what they were thinking. You could feel it. You could feel the cringe. You could feel the, you could, you know, you could feel the anger. You, 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 it, it was a rapid transfer of information just based on visual and auditory clues alone, you know, big data dump. Um, and you modeled it inside your brain. But part of that process is that it's a involuntary and two, um, the net result is that you form a set of, you know, a basic kinship with the person that you're empathizing with. Once you're modeling their mindset and yours, you're related. It's a fictive kinship of sorts. Um, it's one of the mechanisms to create tribes. So we saw in, in the online environment, uh, because of the way we process information, we pattern match instead of read long books and isolation and inform opinions and or long articles in isolation and form opinions and then discuss them. Uh, we're you know grabbing pieces of information out of this torrential flow of info. Um, we're acutely vulnerable to empathy triggers. So when we see that picture, and we saw that with the George Floyd incident, it's like okay, you felt the knee on your neck. You actually felt that. You felt the anger at the at the cop being indifferent to his his plight. And same and with the little boy refugee when the Syrian refugees were coming out. Um, the, right. the little boy on the beach there. Uh, you know, if, you know, I think unless you were just a complete sociopath, like you saw that picture, and no matter what you thought about refugee policy in, in Europe or anything like that, it, it just punched you in the stomach. Right, and it's funny that sociopathology, if it's you know, is may actually be defined by uh, not having that involuntary mechanism when you're growing up. So you don't form correctly. So you actually have to consciously do it later in life. And, you know, it wasn't an involuntary process and didn't, didn't set your brain up correctly. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, in the outside real world, we have all these learned behaviors and mechanisms for protecting ourselves against empathy triggers. You know, we see somebody, somebody, you know, in real life, you know, we're, we're, we're able to parse it better, but in this online environment, we're not. So you had all these empathy triggers going out. People are getting extremely angry. Here's a, here's a, here's a tribesman, somebody, you know, you closely identify with being invaded by this evil entity. And um, we saw this swarm develop around that. And uh, it got very big, very quickly. Um, that tribalization process thing with tribes is that, um, you know, it's formed around the opposition to Putin as the ultimate evil is that tribe, you know, the, you remember the Colonel Kurtz thing from apocalypse now. Okay. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, the whole quandary of the, the whole focus of the movie was on, he was trying to figure out how to um, get his soldiers to act like the tribesmen, right. Is that they would go out, and kill an enemy and do absolutely atrocious things to them, cut their heads off, mutilate them, uh, do all sorts of horrible things. And, and in the process of, of defending themselves, defending their tribe, 
against this enemy. And then they'd go home and, and be perfectly at ease with themselves and, and, you know, kiss their kids goodnight and, and sleep soundly, sleep like babies. But his Western soldiers weren't able to do that. Um, they had, you know, this empath, empathy mechanism uh, uh, kind of uh, preventing them from, from, from doing that kind of thing without having it adverse psychological consequences. But the reason it worked is the tribalism and the tribalism has, you have ultimate empathy for the people in your tribe and you have zero empathy for the people outside. So anything done to them, they're dehumanized. They're not people. Remember how many times people call tribes, the people, Mm, you know, it's like it's the people you're not the people, right. If you're outside of my tribe. And so anything done to them is um, okay. And if you, if they attack you, they're the ultimate evil. They're the, existential evil. And when we see online tribalism, uh, Trump wasn't just a bad president. He was the ultimate evil president. And the same thing with Putin and Russia in this instance, the ultimate evil. And the swarm came about and is fighting this ultimate evil and it spread like wildfire. And, you know, the leaders for the most part, either they joined in, they, they, they signed on mentally to this tribe and, and that viewpoint. Um, and they participated, um, and uh, or they tried to take leadership of it, like uh, Boris Johnson, and come up with innovative ways to move the tribe towards its goal, move this swarm towards its goal, um, and uh, new ways of disconnection. Uh, but he wasn't really taking full leadership because leadership of a swarm, a network swarm like this, is in, entirely conditional. It only is conferred when you're advancing the, the swarm towards its goal. And then um, others who wanted to actually think this through a little bit, uh, those folks uh, kept their mouth shut because if they sided with the evil, the ultimate evil, they would be attacked by the swarm themselves, um, dehumanized, become Putin, Putin lovers, uh, Nazis, whatever, uh, and, and then therefore you know, ineffectual or unelectable in the future. So... Um, yeah, this, this once the swarm was up and going, uh, you know, nobody was in charge. Um, it was focused on the, the ultimate evil, um, and as a result, uh, you know, the way the network operates, it, you know, the way this kind of swarm operates is that the the goals it had for doing what it did were maximalist, meaning that uh, they required, and what the swarm is thinking is that it needs to see a regime change in Russia maybe prosecution for war crimes for Putin or death, preferably, um, and that they want uh, to see the most humiliating treaty in terms of reparations and, and war crimes trials and stuff for Russia in regards to this invasion. Um, and, and then the third thing I think is, is in the back of everybody's head and, and in the way they're thinking on this is that they want to uh, neutralize Russia as a threat in the future, meaning uh, they want Russia to disarm their nuclear weapons, eliminate them, okay? And that they're not allowed to actually have nuclear weapons in the future and therefore can never be uh, able to protect themselves against network action. And, um, you know, a lot of what we're seeing in the swarms in the past or the movements in the past was uh, focusing on ways of reducing power differentials between people, you know, wiping out things that make them, you know, wealth, or weapons ownership or, or, uh, or status and, and 
equalizing so that they are vulnerable to this kind of moral pressure. Yeah, um, Swarm, as, in terms of how it fights, there's three different more, uh, realms of warfare. <clears throat> you want me to get into that? or is a, oh, Please okay. do, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's a, you can fight in the moral realm, uh, you can fight in the physical realm, and you can fight in the uh, psychological realm. I mean, the, the moral realm is usually guerrilla warfare. What you want to do is grow your center of gravity, grow your, you know, I, I view it as kind of a, a gravity well. You want more and more people to fall into it and become part of your movement while you're depleting the other one, the, the opposition. Um, a lot of what we're seeing is, you know, in terms of the hyper propaganda that's being generated by the swarm is to keep that moral status at maximum and then deplete the moral status of the, the opposition, um, make them into the ultimate evil. And the second thing was uh, they also fight in this maneuver psychological. They're disrupting. They're, you know, all these hacking movements, all these, all these uh, uh, deep fakes and other things that would cause people to um, cause the opposition, cause Russia to, to uh, have problems uh, generating a coherent picture, making decisions as to what they should do. Um, and then and what we saw most effectively was what big corporations do in the swarm is really good at is the physical realm. It's attrition warfare and that's disconnection in the network world. That's disconnection. It means uh, by disconnecting you, we make you not part of the modern world. We, we, we make you non-viable. And in Russia's case, it makes them relatively non-viable as a nation state. If they're disconnected from the West, um, although they can shift a lot of, a lot of their technological technology stack to China and purchasers to opportunistic, opportunistic buyers in India and China. Um, Do you think that they, uh, that, that Putin miscalculated the scale of the response from the West or that he calculated that, you know, he's got China and India and Africa and even looks like Saudi Arabia and Israel are hesitating to follow our lead, you know, Mexico, Brazil, um, that he could withstand this uh, being, being cut off from the West, that it would be a rough transition, but that it is survivable. And that this swarm, we call it a global swarm. It's not quite a global swarm, right? It's not Chinese. It's not Indian and so forth. It's really, it really emanates out of the West. Um, Which of those, or do you think maybe it's a mix of the two uh, do you think was driving his decision-making? Well, um, people act based on what history has taught them. Right. And so he thought, that the response would be like in the past and that nuclear power protocols would be in effect, uh, that he would not touch a NATO state as he knows that that would breach the protocol and launch a, you know, a devastating counter. Um, and that uh, he thought the uh, response from the West would be to send in arms and that would be maybe some light sanction activity. All right. Um, Nobody could have anticipated the swarm action. He didn't and know it, that the Western regime can't control the swarm. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think anyone would have even, except for those of us thinking about this stuff, right, uh, anticipated that the swarm would have even happen. Uh, that this kind of level of disconnection, this kind of escalation to uh, turning this, you know, sub-regional war into a war of survival for Russia uh, would, have, would have been on the table, that, that this was even possible. Um, that the, anyone would be so reckless to even do that in a, in a, in a world defined by nuclear power. Um, and uh, yeah, so that 
was a terrible miscalculations and you know operationally tactically obviously was was badly designed and badly done um the, the target was way too big for that kind of operation and um so I uh, no you know please go ahead yeah no and and i think a lot of the response uh, from nations that are kind of waffling on 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 joining us with this are are countries that think that they may be subject to this in the future so china obviously they're running two different tracks they're externally supporting it and highlighting you know crimes and you know anti russia stuff on their external media but their internal media is all pro russia and israel obviously since i you know i already talked about the potential of this happening to israel has to be worried about it because this could be directed at them in an instant and um, and then there's others who just india too with its treatment of, of muslim minorities uh it, you know pro hindi you know governance uh is is potentially vulnerable to this in the future too so um anyone who thinks that there may be a target is waffling so yeah, and then in the western in the western it is basically a, just a western swarm EU US. Angle. I mentioned I mentioned that um, your description of the swarm reminds me of uh, two things. The first one I talked about was a cult, um, and the second one is captured by this quote: uh, "A mob is a strange phenomenon. It is a gathering of heterogeneous elements unknown to one another." except on some essential points such as nationality, religion, social class, etc. But as soon as a spark of passion, having flashed out from one of these elements, electrifies this confused mass, there takes place a sort of sudden organization, a spontaneous generation. This incoherence becomes cohesion, this noise becomes a voice, and these thousands of men crowded together soon form, by a, sing- uh, form a single animal, a wild beast without a name, which marches to its goal with an irresistible finality. The majority of these men would have assembled purely out of curiosity alone, but the fever of some of them soon reaches the minds of all, and in all of them there arises a delirium. The very man who came running to oppose the murder of an innocent person is the first to be seized with a homicidal contagion, and moreover, it does not occur to him to be astonished at this. In our day, I think the author might have said, the very man who came running to demand COVID lockdowns is the first to express support for nationwide protests and riots, or the very man who protested against war yesterday and framed himself as an anti-war advocate is demanding total war today. It's, it's from a book by Gabriel Tarde called The Penal Philosophy, written about 110 years ago. Yep. Um, and I think if he had written it today, he might have left out that part about, you know, where he said it's a gathering of heterogeneous elements unknown to one another, except on some essential points, such as nationality, religion, social class. I think today these network swarms can be so distributed and become so huge that its members really know absolutely nothing whatsoever about the others, except to tell by various markers that they are also a part of the swarm. Uh, So I guess like the question I would have is how does the network swarm uh, sounds to me a lot like a lynch mob. Is that a is that a, a good comparison, or are there differences? Yeah, uh, the reason why I like this the swarm name more than like mob, right? Or is that uh, has more structure to it? And what I saw with the insurgency, uh, you know, open source insurgency and open source protest is that, um, like for instance, I identified a bunch of elements. One was a, a 
it was very, very innovative. So we saw like in Iraq, you know, even though there were 70 different groups and across this political spectrum, religious spectrum, participating in the insurgency, uh, there was a sharing, sharing of information and, and rapid development of ways to beat the U.S. I mean, IED development went at a torrid pace. We come up with a counter and then two weeks later, they come up with a counter to our counter and it would be distributed to be copied uh, using that open source dynamic. Um, so, you know, this tinkering network is what we're seeing now with this, with this, you know, network swarm, um, you know, people come up, maybe a Canadian minister, finance minister coming up with a, a way to target Russia by going after the oligarchs. One second. Mm-hmm. Brady, come. All right. Um, so if Canadian financemen are coming up with an innovation uh, to t- target oligarchs in a misguided attempt to try to you know, flip the oligarchs because oligarchs won't be flipped because their only legitimacy to their money is through Putin. So they were not going to turn on him. Um, it's like a fundamental miscalculation of or misread of the situation. But that is then sold to all the other finance ministers and they, they take that innovation and run with it. And then individuals start to run with it. Um, so, uh, so there's that tinkering. And then there's this communications. The communications I saw in the insurgency and sometimes in, in, in other arenas, uh, particularly in a geographically dispersed swarm like this, is that um, uh, it was stigmergic. Uh, and stigmergy is a, a way that insects communicate with each other uh, so you get this, you know, organizational element uh, in 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 way insects operate, even though this what we call hive mind is is uh, is present even without any centralized control. And so, like for instance, if an ant finds a food source, it then leaves a chemical trail as it carries some food back to the the ant mound. And that chemical trail then serves as a marker for other ants to follow. And if they continue to find the food source, they continue to reinforce that trail. And that's, you know, how, how decentralized communications in that environment works. And then with birds, you can see that, you know, visual cues as to what they're doing with their wings changes the way uh, the other bird in the formation uh, changes theirs. And they to keep the spacing even um, direction in the right direction. So, uh, so in a, in a certain, in a certain we'd see communication through, um, reading the effects of the innovation or the, you know, in, in terms of target, in terms of type of attack in the news, and then people see, Oh, it worked. I'm copying that. So they use the news media as a reflection board, as a port a board, you know, throw it up against the wall and the news media would, would cover it. And then they would see the success of that. And then the other groups would get communication from that, um, from, you know, the method, from uh, the, the, the type of a target that they were attacking. And, and so we're seeing that here too, is that people will post stuff like say on Twitter and other things. And they were sharing information um, through this public forum at a, at a hyper velocity. And, you know, it's, you don't know who's going to consume that information that you're putting up there, but you're putting it up there and it's, you know, cross-fertilizing. Somebody may run with it and do something more with it, but there's this kind of formalization of communication that brings it up to another level. Um, it makes it very potent. I mean, the innovation rates are way, way higher with a with a big tinkering network than we would see in the, in in terms of what nation states could do by themselves. Um, and uh, 
uh, the rate of communication, internal communication is, 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 is hyper fast. Um, and it's very Darwinian. You know, if the stuff, if the information doesn't pan out or, it, you know, people will constantly check the veracity of it to see if, you know, it, it, it's actually true. They'll, they'll, they'll dig through the picture and look for cues that would signal that it's fake or, or um, they try they you know, expert would come in and say, you can't, that's not going to work. Um, and the, the feedback loops are amazingly quick. So, um, yeah, so that extra structure, you know, makes it different than a mob. Like, oh, you know, somebody go, yeah, let's go. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. You, you, all- mentioned, you mentioned how uh, these network swarms, by their very nature, always have maximalist demands um, and no sense of proportionality with regard to their target. And one of the things that I am very concerned with with this current with this current crisis with Russia and Ukraine is the response of a swarm when it doesn't get its way. You know, between 2016 and 2020, the swarm had its designated scapegoat, Donald Trump, and it used all of its energy to try to create a hostile consensus built around Donald Trump. But until 2020, they, they just weren't able to get him. You know, the right. institutions of government, as wobbly as they are, they still had enough legacy juice left in them that an angry mob couldn't just drive a president from office without at least a fig leaf of working within the institutions. Um, and so for those four years, the swarm thrashed around all that aggressive energy latching on to Brett Kavanaugh and then the Covington Catholic boys, you know, just one target after another as a substitute for this big target that they that they just couldn't get. And I worry about something similar happening with this war. I, I have something of a contrarian take on the progress of the war. I think it probably differs from yours a little bit. And you can talk about that. Um, I think that Russia will will probably secure the South and the East of the country and declare victory and entrench themselves in a more or less impregnable defensive position. Um, I, I think you disagree with that and feel free to talk about the disagreement. But I'm curious about your thoughts on how the swarm would respond if it turns out that Vladimir Putin and his nuclear armed state like Trump and until 2020 uh, are simply too strong to take down and they have to watch as Vladimir Putin declares victory and starts rebuilding Eastern and Southern Ukraine. If that happens, and and again, feel free to talk about why you you think that's unlikely, but if it happens, where does all that energy go? Right. Um, Well, much of the work on escalating the conflict has already happened. I mean, turning Russia into North Korea is by itself, uh, Significant. And, and, and I think it could maintain the pressure over the long term on making that possible. It just, I, you know, pushed us into a chaotic state. And when that chaos subsided, when we went back to an ordered environment, uh, that was a new assumption that everyone's operating on that okay, Russia will stay disconnected. Um, you think that, that the Anglosphere can keep the Europeans on board with that over the long term? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And, and, I mean, there's a fight over, over disconnecting the gas. Uh, that's going to be slow. It can be blocked now because it's unanimity has to be in, involved in, in a lot of these uh, EU negotiations. And so, but the alternatives are already in place. So the, over the next five to 10 years, Russia, if, if it lasts, if this kind of unsteady thing lasts long enough, they will be completely isolated from all Western contact. Um, I don't think that can apply to China. We're also seeing as the frustration of, once the disconnection has happened um, is that they're putting pressure on all these member states 
and and all you know and and the U.S. as well to intervene to do the no you know set up a no-fly zone to uh, you know send troops in uh, and there was even talk of of NATO members operating as individuals or as, as individual nations and, and sending troops in um, without the protection of NATO but that's escalatory you know that would cause a a, a counter um, I think by itself just the disconnection is a uh, escalation that may result in a nuclear conflict <laughs> only that it, it, look it took the the sub-regional thing brought it to a war of survival for Russia that, you know as much as they want to shift to China it's not going to happen fast enough and they are going to be subsistence for a long time um, economy collapsed living on borrowed time trying to make a transition uh, and then they have that in the background and they're fighting this war that is chewing up equipment, chewing up men um, at a, at a pretty rapid rate. And that, um, you know, it's moved into a war of attrition on the ground and that they're uh, in a situation that they have to get to the negotiation table to get out and that they are doing what, so I, you know, to, to think this through, I often have to put myself in the leader you know, what, what Putin would be thinking. And that in order to, um, he still thinks that he may get reconnected if this war ends, but he can't stay disconnected for a long time because it would be too destabilizing and he'd be fighting a two front war. He'd fight elements inside his country as well as getting chewed up on the outside uh, in, in Ukraine. So, um, and then you'd, you know, if it was a humiliating defeat in the Ukraine, uh, what would happen? And, and he, you know, his forces just collapsed. Uh, then he would be uh, vulnerable to encroachment from all the Western powers that would be sending in, everybody would be working on ways to send in support for insurgents inside Russia itself. And there would be a direct involvement inside Russia to destabilize the country um, and move towards that regime change and that, that takeover. Um, and so, <clears throat> so he's got to win this and he's gone. He can't do the maneuver warfare. He, he's in attrition. He's, he's starting to do what he can do is just make it as expensive as possible for, you know, attrition warfare is basically make physical, physically incapacitating an enemy, uh, making them impossible for them to respond. So he's reducing the cities one by one by one. And that's what he's going to do. He's just going to destroy these cities one by one by one. Um, Assuming that he's, you know, he's not going to um, be defeated. So um, here's the thing: the nuclear points, the points that this where this gets dicey for me, is that you know he's under pressure to do this. Uh, he can't be defeated. Okay, so he, he, as soon as he starts to look like he's defeated, uh, he has to warn the West off. Okay, put up a totem. Uh, you know, just like, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki is a totem to, you know, look, we're, we're, we're too powerful. Don't mess with us. Right. Uh, is that he has to demonstrate the only thing that he has that actually is, 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 is supremely powerful is that he has to detonate some nukes inside Ukraine to, to prove it and say, do not in, interfere in, in Russian internal politics. We're, and then you try to spin it as a kind of withdrawal to the borders. Uh, you know, we didn't want to fight with NATO. But don't mess with us, nukes. Or um, he sees the, you know, he, 
he decides that he's going to take the bull by the horns and rather than keep this going in a protracted conflict for, for you know, months, if not years, uh, that he uh, is going to use tactical nukes to uh, shake up the battlefield. Now, if you in Russian old style Soviet military doctrine, there was a kind of a, a very slippery slope or kind of it was assumed that you would go into tactical nuclear use. Right. Most people think that was just to blow holes through uh, military formations, but uh, it was generally, if you boil that up to another level, it's basically to unstick the conflict, you know, make it make it more mobile, make it more fluid, make it more flexible. I, I, so, I believe the, the, the Russians have tactical nukes that are like a tenth of a kiloton, like very, very small battlefield nukes. Right. And so rather than wasting men in, a, in, a, in an urban assault, they'll reduce, reduce. If they don't go, then you'll have this micro nuke taking out the, the hard part and, and, and basically showing to the world that they, they're, they're going for a victory in this. Um, and then that would drive Ukraine to the table and they would give up everything if destruction of their country was the ultimate uh, end game. Now you could just, you could, you could do relatively small nukes across the whole of, uh, of uh, Dnieper, uh, you know, the, the main river from Kiev down to uh, Crimea and um, cut off the East from the West. I mean, make that impassable zone, you know, it would take about five or six, you know, 10 kiloton warheads to do that and, and, and essentially cut them off. I mean, it, it's aggressive and um, it's a, it's a, you know, it does both the totem effect and uh, it gives them a victory um, where, you know, he doesn't have time to go for the victory. Um, in short, I, you know, I, I don't think this is really any, uh, you know, even if we're able to get out of Ukraine and there's still Russia disconnected, um, and that conflict is, is, has been negotiated. Everyone's back to the original start lines, uh, a disconnected Russia trying to find ways of shaking up the world, you know, to escalate to deescalate kind of approach to things. Uh, using nukes as a way to do that uh, is is not good. It, it's kind of thing that would would trigger things, and all all along that whole kind of thinking process, uh, as he's destroying those cities, any one of the the swarm is pushing NATO countries and and, and the U.S. to intervene to stop the humanitarian for humanitarian reasons to stop the slaughter of our tribesmen, <laughs> you know, of, of of the people we have empathy for. Um, and that uh, that will just become more intense the more loss of life there is. And you get 10 million people, Ukrainians already inside of the West or you know, inside of Europe, and they're all campaigning and they're going to be people talking to people and talking to people and talking to people, uh, you know, campaigning for intervention. And if that happens, that goes straight to nukes. Um, yeah, get, that's, that's, a, like that's accelerator. really frightening because... A few years ago, I can't remember the exact wording, but Vladimir Putin uh, said something that essentially was, uh, if a fight is inevitable, then throw the first punch. And when you look back at old Soviet military doctrine, and you've talked about this before, uh, you know, they, they, they have always considered nuclear weapons uh, much differently than we do in the West. Like for us, it's an on-off switch. It's either totally mutually assured strategic destruction or else, you know, that's it. Um, the Russians have, have typically not ever thought of it that way. There's much more of a continuum that these weapons are on. And what I really worry about is 
you know, if this swarm pushes Russia into a like Japan 1941 Pearl Harbor situation where they, you know, they're, they're, they're not directly involved in conflict with us yet, but they feel backed into a corner to a degree where they think war is inevitable. Um, you know, what that Pearl Harbor moment would actually look like, especially if, you know, the, if, if Vladimir Putin and his leadership looks at it and says, if we do light off this tactical nuke, um, we've gamed this out a hundred times and, in 51 of those scenarios, this escalates to an all-out nuclear war. So maybe we just start there. I mean, that's a terrifying you know, idea. But uh, what, what do you think the most likely outcome is as far as that goes? All right. Um, what would be the disruptive event that would unstick this? All right. So... Um, the only, the, you know, it's like they only have one hammer, one nail in this, it, it's resources. And so uh, what they need is to get their resources back on the market. And we already have these, you know, vast, res, you know, disruptions in, in supply left over from COVID. And that's kind of like the thing that's worrying me in the background here is that if you talk to any big company, like you could talk to any hospital, they're still being disrupted by COVID and they're just still being disrupted by uh, even the Puerto Rico uh, hurricane. And they still haven't recovered from that. And there's still supply shortages across the board. Things aren't, aren't available, even the best hospitals in the country. And, and then you add in this, um, you know, into the supply system, uh, things aren't recovering. Their things are kind of going wacky in the background, uh, you know. And um, so if you're Russia and you've resolved the Ukrainian uh, conflict, uh, and it's not, it's not the pressing issue at the forefront, how do you unstick this? How do you get out from this disconnection? Is it sounds that- like you you don't think that, I, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, Russia has things that the world economy needs, right? Um, and maybe they can't sell them to Germany or the United States anymore, but um, they'll they'll sell to China who will buy less from, say, this other country who then sells their stuff to Germany. I, it sounds like you don't think that that is as easy to rewire as maybe it would seem to somebody who who doesn't know a lot about it like me yeah no i don't i don't think you're rewiring your whole economy that was set up basically western facing um to uh be china facing is easy uh and um you know being generally disconnected where every bit of information transfer is being blocked you know or you know even on you know uh substack or you know like all sorts of things that are just be, where where things are just being blocked um Slack, uh, GitHub, uh, you know, where, where projects are being cut off is that you can actually this, you know, shift easily. And that, uh, even if you're just talking the, you know, for it's a complex economy, this is not just, you know, a couple big oligarchs and their big resource companies. I mean, there's a, a whole massive economy that was that in addition to that, where people were employed and they've, you know, gotten educations for things. And, and just to focus exclusively on just the resource sales, even if they're discounted resource sales is, is probably the wrong way to look at it. Sure. Um, yeah. I, I do think though, their way back in is to find ways of disrupting our resource production that we're back to the negotiation table that we're, excuse me, um, forced to go back to Russia and start to open up connections again. 
that means uh, anytime, like say Germany tries to build an LNG facility, that's suddenly goes boom. Or, you know, they have, they've, outside of the invasion of Ukraine, Russia hasn't escalated. As far as my, my perspective on this, um, you know, there hasn't been an active escalation where they have attacked the West with cyber attacks uh, or, you know, uh, systems disruption uh, that would, would be a sign of, of, of escalation. But that will be the case if they are remain disconnected after Ukraine. Um, and then, you know, you break things, you just knock things out. We have more targets than they do. I mean, you know, a hundred to one. I have a friend who uh, runs a hedge fund that focuses on commodity trade flows. And he, uh, he is an apocalyptic uh, view of what the 12 next 12 to 18 months are going to look like in places like Africa and the Middle East as these resource disruptions really start to work their way through the economy uh, economies of these countries um, and I was talking to Gray Connolly last night um, and you know he mentioned that you go forward that one of the you know one of the weapons that Russia might have diplomatic weapons is the fact that there are going to be places with real shortages all over the world. And they're going to be able to use the fact that they, you know, whether we like it or not, um, that they've got ships full of, full of grain to provide to these places that they could use that as a, a diplomatic weapon, sort of a can opener, can opener into some of these, into some of these regions. Yeah. Um, I think the, uh, those can openers were, would have been more effective in the old 20th century system. Um, you know, I found that the the swarm is pretty unforgiving. I mean, when it's it's facing ultimate evil, and even if there's people being damaged by by the action, it doesn't really matter. Um, the the thinking is that they would sacrifice if they're fighting ultimate evil. There has to be, they're going to be damaged. That's okay. Um, and uh, you know, any kind of talk to the contrary is just the uh, second order effects. Let's, let's ignore those. Just focus on the on, on, on defeating this evil. And if we don't do that, then we're all of Eastern Europe's gone, and the world is going to you know be swallowed up by Putin. Um, and that is the ultimate worst thing. So, uh, yeah, no, I I, I just uh, don't see it. You're exactly right that that the people that are going to get hit with this supply disruption first are everybody who can't afford it, right? I mean, we can afford to buy what supplies available on everything. Um, the same thing would happen if Taiwan was hit, right? So it's like 50% of the world's chip production goes away. And then, but who would be able to afford the, the computers and everything else? It would be the people with the money to be able to do that. Um, and everyone else would have to go tough. Same with food, same with raw materials. Um, yeah, we're, we're going to see a return of famine, obviously. Uh, for the first time that hasn't been war related, like, you know, where the, where the combatants actually stopped the flow of, of, of food supplies um, in, in decades. Um, and we're going to see that return and we'll see revolutions and, and, and disruption, you know, where there's a revolts and, and, and coups and other things in response to failing economies and um, where, where things aren't working uh, and people react badly they blame the government that is so um yeah it it's gonna be tough i just don't i don't see an easy path back once you know once we went into chaos and came back reset 
there's no rehabilitation. Okay, until Putin's gone um, and that the, the treaties, you know, they start paying reparations and all that stuff and they nuclear disarm. I think that's the only way to get back. And they're not going to do it, obviously. So, um, yeah, I mean, th- this entire escalation thing is just, it's nuts. It's like you see like Biden just calling him, you know, Putin a war criminal, which means that you can't ever negotiate with the guy. You're not going to negotiate with a war criminal, right? Um, and, um, well, that's kind of the same pattern uh, with which Western leadership has been relating to, you know, like all their domestic opposition as well, right? I think about Justin Trudeau responding to the Canadian truckers' protest, just calling them a bunch of racist, homophobe, you know, sexist, etc. And therefore, by definition, these are people that you cannot sit down across the table with and, and listen to their concerns. Uh, same with kind of the the people who were concerned about the way the election was conducted, the January six people. You know, these people are beyond the pale. You can't possibly sit down with them. In fact, if anybody advocates listening to their concerns, that person's probably part of the problem and needs to be excommunicated as well. And right. so, yeah, it's very, 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 very difficult. So one of the questions I have is, you know, the swarm can't stop itself. And obviously we're at a point where our governments are to a large degree taking their cues from the swarm. But if it reaches a point where just I'll put a hypothetical situation out there where the war kind of winds down that Russia is not really interested in, you know, occupying Lviv and, and, and the rest of Western Ukraine. Um, and then maybe say like, like Putin steps down and Medvedev or somebody else takes his place and starts making you know, starts reaching out to you know, maybe first the Europeans, but then saying, okay, let's, you know, let's move on here. The war's over. Uh, do you think that the strategic planners for the nation states, you know, would they have the, would they have the capability to say, go to the corporations, go to uh, the big tech companies and so forth and say, look, yeah, the swarm wants you to do this. But this is this is this is what you're going to do. This is over now. Do you think that's possible? Uh, no, and I don't think that I don't think most of them would do it. Even inside of their, you know, the way this network works, it 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 doesn't necessarily even have to flip the leadership of a bureaucracy. It goes in crab-like sideways into that bureaucracy and flips individuals inside it. Um, and if people see it as morally objectionable that you're negotiating with ultimately evil. You know, everybody inside of Russia is basically implicated in this um, and that uh, any retention of any capacity to actually resist the network, meaning nuclear weapons, has to be taken away. Uh, so, you know, regime change plus disarmament plus trying to make amends, that would start to loosen things up. But anything prior to that, uh, you know, government leaders think they can unwind it. No, they can't. Uh, they might do it on the on the macro scale, and they'll get resoundingly ha- hammered for it. They'll be attacked as you know, cutting deals to uh, to aid ultimate evil. Um, yeah, it's it's been reset. Um, not much else you can do on that. It's just that yeah, the network um, doesn't mind going up to the edge. It, it doesn't have a sense of uh, uh, Jordan Hall pointed this out. It's like doesn't have a sense of mortality. Okay, mm-hmm. it, there's no. Like an organization, you can feel that it has life and death. You go bankrupt, you're dead, right? But a uh, network can go towards you know maximalist gains uh, or maximalist goals and press with everything it's worth and mobilize everything to focus in on that. But uh, it, it thinks it's as 
itself as immortal, as um, invulnerable. You can kill half of us and we still be there. Um, and that, um, and there's not this kind of culpability as individuals are contributing to it. Uh, you know, you, you can get away with doing, saying things that are in line with the, the network's expectations uh, without repercussion. So you can call Putin a war criminal, even though a sane leader would say, okay, I have to negotiate with this guy. You know, I wouldn't normally do that, you know, to bring this up to a personal level. I wouldn't target oligarchs in particular because that looks like a coup attempt that we're trying to, to directly influence a you know, regime change and escalating it farther. Um, or I wouldn't be Trudeau and, and call these people all Nazis and, and, and racists and, and other horrible people. Um, they're able to do that because they're reflecting the network. Uh, and uh, they will have no blame or no culpability for that within the network. You talk about uh, AI in a very interesting way that, um, that, I, that I think people ought to hear. Um, you know, the, the traditional way we think about AI-driven disasters, um, it, it, we really think of it in industrial terms, right? Like Terminator. You're going to have AI right. that starts building machines that then come and attack us the way soldiers would attack us, et cetera. Or maybe, you know, we're stupid enough to give it control over our nuclear weapons and it launches them at us. I had this idea <clears throat> a while back for a short story that I, I wrote down. I should probably finish this. Um, it was sort of a sci-fi short story that was based on a very different idea of it, which, you know, is that we're, we're here plugged in very, very intimately to these phones that we have now and to the internet all the time in a way that, like you said, is really reshaping our behavior, uh, giving us completely different decision-making loops and, and, and driving the way that we understand the world on a, on a very fundamental level. And behind all this, this data is being siphoned up and collected and fed into these increasingly sophisticated AI systems that, you know, uh, just every one of these big tech corporations is really pouring a huge amount of their resources into developing. And you can imagine, especially as 5G gets widely distributed and you start getting to the internet of things where, you know, everything from your couch to your refrigerator to everything is connected up to the internet and just data is being sucked up from every human activity imaginable that you have these highly developed AI systems that can look at that. And you know, not only can they predict what we're going to do, uh, they can shape very much like what we're going to do. They can, uh, you know, to, to the point where we almost become possessed. Right. And so the idea would be that rather than, you know, giving Skynet control over our nuclear weapons and then Skynet decides to launch them one day is that Skynet just gets us, us to launch them. We, we, we do it for it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's essentially correct. It's, okay. So most people think of AI as a human equivalent, like that, you know, everyone's developing this kind of try to uh, better than human intelligence that would think and talk like us, but maybe at a more sophisticated level. Um, but that's really not where all the money is going and, and where the biggest AIs are being built. Um, those, the AIs that we're actually building, live in the space between us, you know, as, as economic actors, as social actors, and they suck up all that data in the in-between. Um, and they get, you know, the more data means what we're finding is the more data you have, the more intelligent you are. I mean, there's people trying to come up with workarounds for that, but generally speaking, you know, 
we're trying to relearn the program that we have in our heads from scratch. And the way you get that is running all this data <laughs> into it and trying to get it to learn from that. So um, there's a couple of ways this thing goes bad. Uh, one is the, you know, the paperclip maximizer, which could have been a, you know, intelligent, you know, that's not a, a, a this idea that you know there was a goal set for an AI and they pursue it, but they pursue it along a path that's wrong, and that's the classic trope from sci-fi, sci whereas they, um, you know, uh, want to protect humanity, but the way to protect it is to kill humanity, right? Or, or just save their. They come up with some weird interpretation in order to do it, or the pathing is such like in if it's a a, a very basic thing, you, you give an AI with the ability to learn the uh, the task of producing as many paper clips as possible, right? At the cheapest possible level. And so what it does, it gets smarter and smarter. And what it does, it acquires more resources. It builds more, more factories. It keeps on producing paper clips, paper clips, paper clips. Uh, people try to shut it down. Uh, it develops self-defense capabilities. It uh, keeps on producing paper clips. Uh, it goes to war and acquires more resources and eventually gets all the resources of the planet dedicated towards whichever means it does towards paperclip production. And then it covers the planet with a mile of paperclips and then it goes into space. It does the same through the whole universe, right? That simple goal is everything for it. And it keeps on going. And, um, but the reality is probably going to be something a little bit more subtle. I mean, we had a little bit of variant of the paperclip maximizer with the amplification maximizer, the, what they call the stickiness maximizer inside of Facebook and, and, and uh, Google is on, on YouTube is that they wanted people to stick around and they found that people sticking around uh, happen more often when the, th the, the content is more uh, outrageous. So they're constantly directing you towards outrageous content because that's the stuff you're going to post on play on this whole thing that because the stuff is the content is so intimately delivered and you see something outrageous, you have to say something and you get involved. And that's, po that's that polarization feature. That's a paperclip maximizer in action. And yeah, and the, the more interesting thing for me is I'm thinking about, you know, what we're doing in crypto, what we're doing with social networking and all that space is building systems that include embedded AIs that will run this entire socioeconomic system as an artifact. It will be a technological artifact. Okay. And we're all arguing now over how, and, and at a systemic level between China and us, between how that artifact is built. What are the conditions? How, what is it trying to maximize at the very low level? How it's you know, managing or mitigating our, our interactions? Um, where is it taking us? Or is there a central goal? Or is it allowing us to each develop our own goal? And, uh, you know, how much leeway? Uh, and um, that whole struggle is, is painful, but we're going to build that artifact if we don't blow ourselves up in the meantime. And... Um, uh, it's hard to imagine, but, you know, crypto points in that direction, like building entire s companies and software, uh, building entire financial systems and software uh, where you don't have any of the banks and brokers like we have now. Uh, it, it, most of it all is done in, in, in software. And the, the time between, you know, when you do the compression of activities in the social or the uh, financial economy gets is very, very small. Like it takes you one step to do something that's really complex right now. Um, and um, like starting a company, click, done, right? 
I'm, I'm, I'm a company right now. You have to go through all the state shopping and you have to do this. this, this all these things have to be set up. Um, so that compression means that things accelerate. Yeah. The AI is pretty interesting. It, you know, no one would have expected a couple years ago or 10 years ago that um, based on the direction of all the people developing in the space, that it would have ended up being what it was. It was a black box. Um, that is one of the cool parts about it, but also the scary part. Uh, deep learning is a black box. Okay, so it's taking all this data and developing a solution, but it doesn't use physics. It doesn't use math. It doesn't use anything in the traditional sense of not thinking in those abstract terms. It's just developing what works, right? So it's kind of like teaching your kid how to catch a ball. Right, your kid's not calculating physics or anything. It just he's configuring a neural network to catch that ball based on experience. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we're already kind of rewired in a way that makes that uptake really quick. So with deep learning, if you build like an autonomous weapon system, right, um, you put it through lots and lots of simulations, and it, it, that's why I think there's going to end up being a simulation command at some point where you run them through a billion simulations to kind of teach it the basics. And then you take it out of that and put it into the real world and test it, test it, test it, test it. Um, you're not looking at the programming. You're not looking at the neural network itself to see how it's configured because you can't figure out. It looks like spaghetti, you know, a, a, a pile of spaghetti 10 miles high. It's, it's, makes, it's totally nonsensical. What you can do is judge its behavior. And all you could do is like when you're, when you're testing a human being against, you know, like in a, are they a good pilot? You put them through their paces and you see if they screw up. And if they screw up, once you put them through those tests, then it's a, you know, a, a faulty training system or something went wrong. And that's the only way you're going to handle the, you know, these autonomous weapon systems. The only way you're going to handle these AIs in the future is, is, is you judge them based on performance. And that's a big switch for people working on. A, that's also the why they're so hard to hack too. And once a fully developed AI is like, how do you, how do you hack something that what do you change to change right. the behavior, right? You might, if you had access to the whole thing, you might find flaws in how it recognizes stuff like we do now, but those are just, uh, you'd have to have access to the entire system in order to try to find those flaws. And those flaws, once they learn it, they, you know, those flaws don't exist. You could do that with human beings too. I mean, if you had full access to their attention span, find um, out what they would think wrong. That, that, idea for the sci-fi short story that I had, um, you know, the end state that I, like the way that I kind of structured the story was that the, the, this AI became so profoundly efficient at uh, predicting and shaping our behavior that we essentially uh, became possessed by it. And that there would be, uh, you know, the protagonist of the story would be this one person who, for whatever is maybe a neuroatypical person who it just doesn't quite work on him. And so he finds himself in this world of, you know, not quite zombies. It's not as if these right. people have been body snatched. They're, they're totally uh, operating according to their own agency, but they're following the imperatives that are set up by the inst- incentive structures of the AI. Um, and that kind of uh, brings me to um, uh, another one of your more uh, frightening concepts of the long night. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about that? All right. Well, you know, the reason why communism failed was the inability to innovate over the long term. It, 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 it was relatively stagnant. It's great at mobilizing resources, great big bureaucracy is great at, and, you know, the more complex the society becomes, the, the harder it is for 
to do that. But um, and inefficiencies arise as it gets more complex. But effectively, it was stagnant. Um, you have to have this kind of decentralized atmosphere in order, you know, where new ideas are coming out of the left field and accepted and, and, and allowed to uh, see if they work in order to, to move forward. You have to have a kind of an innovation space, you know, where you explore a new technology. And we see that with VCs and open source and, 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 uh, uh, and now with crypto, they are mechanisms for funding exploration of, of innovation spaces in new technologies. So, what we're seeing in China right now is attempt to lock down their society. And the net result of that lockdown um, in order to kind of weather the kind of chaotic storms that they're, 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 they're being confronted with is that innovation will slow and their ability to move forward will stagnate. Um, and that uh, we're in the West at a, at a, at a point where we could go towards that is that uh, in order to stop the disruption, stop the trucker protests, stop the uh, anti-vax sentiment, stop all of that stuff that's disruptive, uh, that uh, uh, makes people cry. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's like, it's, it's annoying, right? And it makes people hyper when they see it, is that, the, is that you configure the system to wipe that out, that you identify a, a, a view of reality, uh, uh, A take on reality that's very tightly defined uh, and that brooks no variance. Um, and that kind of system, and when it's enforced by AIs and forced by the network, and is all the companies and all the governments are doing the same thing and they're all on board with it. And um, it gets down to your perceptual level with AR because it can, it'll be able to change the way you see things. Um, that becomes the long night. We, we get into this very narrow view of reality and we can't break out because all of those controls that prevent us from moving outside of that are locked into the infrastructure. It becomes part of everything that we do and, and it's constantly blocking us. There's not even a bad guy you can point out. There's not a big brother. I mean, everything, the whole system, everything that we, the whole socioeconomy is big brother in the sense that it's all forcing you back into this thing. Um, you can do it at a macro level in terms of what is an allowable topic for public discussion. We're already seeing that. And then we see it, uh, we'll see it at the micro level because AIs are, you know, it used to be uh, back in the 20th century, it took a whole, only a nation state could, could monitor the telecommunications of a nation. I mean, they would have vast bureaucracies to do that. Uh, who had no one else had the resources to do it. Now companies with AIs could do that on a, for a, a billion plus people. I mean, Facebook is doing it with 3 billion plus users monitoring every conversation and they're getting better and better at that. They build a surveillance technology and a censorship technology that, that nation states could only hope to do. And they're doing it with a fraction of the employees um, and fraction of the costs. And um, yeah, so we're, we're heading that and the long night is, the thing I'd like to avoid because yeah. that stagnation, that's like end of humanity. You can't get out of it. You know, we just wind down and down and down. But it, it, it sort of seems like the current conflict in Ukraine in a way is uh, the result of what seems to be kind of a truth here, which is that the only tool that 
uh, traditional institutions like a nation state have to fight back against this is physical force. That's really the only card that they can pull. They could go blow up Facebook headquarters or something. But the thing is, is once this technology is unleashed, really, you could blow up Facebook headquarters, but the idea is out there and another one would would pop up because it's just it's so profitable to do it that the technology would drive us back there. You kind of reminded me of this this quote that I I share every once in a while. It's really great from William S. Burroughs book, uh, Intrazone, where he says, we have a new type of rule now. Not one-man rule or rule of aristocracy or plutocracy, but of small groups elevated to positions of absolute power by random pressures and subject to political and economic factors that leave little room for decision. They are representatives of abstract forces who have reached power through surrender of self. The iron-willed dictator is a thing of the past. There will be no more Stalins, no more Hitlers. The rulers of this most insecure of all worlds are rulers by accident, inept, Frightened pilots at the controls of a vast machine they cannot understand, calling in experts to tell them which buttons to push. It's the idea that like nobody's really driving this ship. You know, the bots are are driving the ship, right? The, the, and uh, and the swarm is just kind of directing itself, almost uh, like 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 the weather. You know, where it goes uh, first in this direction and then to another. A friend of mine. Uh, uh, James Poulos from the Claremont Institute. I, I don't know if, if you two know each other, but I would love to place you two in dialogue because uh, you, I mean, it's, it's just, it would be perfect synergy there. He has this idea that, uh, that this is this, 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 um, you know, leaderless, uh, you know, undirected um, uh, system that's, that's out there, say this network that's out there uh, is going to drive in directions that uh, align with the incentive structures built into it. And so we have to get control of these things. And what he says, the, the term he uses, he's a, he's a, he's an Orthodox religious guy uh, says we need to catechize the bots. And so if we have certain values. We have to find ways to uh, create these incentive structures within these, uh, these frameworks so that they end up driving us in a direction that is at least uh, recognizably human. Do you think that, the structure of these network technologies is such that there, there really is only one way that they can be built, like one set of in, in incentives that they can be based on, or, or can we catechize the bots? Yeah, one of the survival strategies to get out of the long night is decentralization. We're seeing a little bit of this with the states taking their own initiatives and saying, if this network touches us, we want these rules in place want this system to work this way here. Um, I think that's a good thing because it, it prevents the collapse scenarios. You have enough decentralization in the system that somebody might come up with the solution to a problem or see us see a problem before it hits. Um, you know, uh, that kind of decentralization is, is probably the only way that this uh, doesn't go bad unless we can actually put a general rule set where we have rights, you know, bounding this entire network. And then we export to that, to the world. And we can share it with everybody else. Um, because the incentives on, 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 you know, there isn't anyone in control. You're exactly right in that is that um, the restrictions that they're bidding, putting in place are being driven by this network swarm. And they're, and they're not putting pro you know, what they're for into the system. They are just identifying what they're against, which means if you're not against something, it's okay. 
right? So uh, you know, I never have to justify anything that that that, that happens that as long as you're not the bad guy. It's like, <laughs> by by saying by opposing something that happens, then you become the bad guy. But you, no one's really in favor of some of the excesses. Uh, they're just against the people who would stand in opposition to the excesses, which is like an impossible thing to to work. But that is being used as the as the uh, template for the systemic structure. So that's being baked into the infrastructure, and slowly but surely, company by company, um, and as companies influence each other, that's going to be built in. Um, and we don't have any say over it. Um, we don't have any protections against it. Uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, easy way, if you're talking about apocalypse scenarios for this to wind down is that um, we already see this kind of demographic collapse. Okay. Because of the way this technology, you know, it used to be electricity hits the ha- you know, household you know, birth rates go down. People have other things to do in the evening. And then, and, you know, it's just like, it goes on and on. And now we have all this stuff and AR too. And once you get in VR and all that other things, and when it, when everything is so competitive with real life uh, that uh, birth rates will just continue to fall to nothing and that we'll see a, a complete collapse of populations across the board. Um, and that, you know, it really depends on how fast this technology hits Africa because Africa is really the only place that's still growing I mean, on this current track. It'll still add about two to three China's worth of people. So by 2100 on the current track, they'll have half of all young people under 20 will be African. So, but if this technology hits, that won't be the case either. So China's collapsing, Russia's collapsing. The U S is in, in, starting to collapse. Uh, we're starting Europe's in, in deep collapse uh, and that the population outside of Africa is already at peak. It's not going up anymore. It's already on the downside. And that just that downside slope will accelerate. And this technology, if you, if an AI contributed to that could accelerate that. So, uh, you know, resource constraints, it's bad to add a kid because of the, you know, it worsens the environmental situation. We could shoot right past that 2 billion global population number within a century. Yeah, it's like, whoosh. I mean, this is, I mean, we're talking like rapidity of, of you know, what's happening. I mean, already women, a 20-year-old woman today will be half as fertile as a woman 30 years ago. Wow. I mean, in the US, I mean, so the chances of them having children are very, very low. And then you look at testosterone and sperm count levels among men, it's just cratered in recent decades. Right, yeah, there's like, yeah, there's a kind of almost a biological response to this too. And, um, you know, once you start messing with the core mechanics of how we operated as humans for 200,000 years um, or longer, uh, then you start to get, bad effects and it comes out in population comes out of family formation it comes out in all sorts of things that will i don't see a corrective to this either i mean well how do we protect ourselves from it then i don't know you know i mean i'm leaving that for future generations but i I mean i have four kids so it's like hey (laughs) i contributed my little bit and, and i was able to afford them and i was able to raise them well and educate them and orient them in the right way so, um, but I don't think I'm going to have a lot of grandkids, even if I got them focused on the right stuff, um, just by the nature of the way things work now. So what do you think, and I'll 
wrap this up. You've been really generous with your time and I, and I appreciate it. Um, what do you think is the most likely outcome of this conflict in Ukraine and, and what percent chance do you put on the possibility that it escalates into war between Russia and one or more great powers? Yeah. So, so percentages are really, really tough. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and when it comes down to the thinking of individual actors, it's really tough. And my experience is that's, that's a you know, kind of a fool's game to actually anticipate what a, a somebody will do as an individual. Um, but you can, you can get a sense of that. Um, it's better to stick with larger trends and things, the way things are moving and, and get a feel for them. If you get a feel for them, if you have a good nose for it, good gut, man, you can really, really be good. At, you know, I was, I've been pretty good at doing this stuff because I just have somehow I have that gut. Um, and I don't know why. That's why all this stuff you're saying is so scary to me is you've been right about so much stuff in the past. I've been watching your prophecies be fulfilled for the last 12, 15 years. And I'd re- uh, <laughs> that, that's kind of scary. I'd rather be wrong, you know, you know, it's, um, um, and generally I'm an optimist and I think we could muddle our way through it and that we'll take like, take this network decision-making system and turn it into something as effective as bureaucracy is in government and corporations and as markets are for producing wealth and at resource allocation uh, left in the raw form, they're horrific. Right. But when you get your arms around it and you turn it into something good and you, you, you discipline it, it becomes an amazing system. Um, and we can do the same thing with networking. I mean, if we can come up with networking decision-making system that, that, that allows us to mobilize and get stuff done fast, but in the right way that doesn't abuse itself, abuse its power along the way that has limits, you know, uh, that's just an amazing thing. I know you've been a big proponent of, uh, of data, like individual data ownership, you know, making each one of us uh, the the owner and proprietor over our own data, right? And I, oh yeah, I, and you know, what do you, what what do you think that would accomplish? Well, uh, okay, so generally, my view of AIs is that they live in the space between us; they consume our data. Um, they are going to become the most valuable technological artifacts in the world. Every single big company says that that is their future. Right, Google, uh, Amazon, Facebook, uh, anyone who's in the technology sector, or even the big guys, are saying their future is building these great AIs, and these great AIs consume data. Uh, so, if those things are the future and the future economy and the most valuable things on earth, and they're being built with our data, mostly just by learning from it, right, um, and getting tweaked along the way. The only way we participate in that economic future is that if we have some stake in it, it's like, it's like being a, uh, a surf on a feudal estate, right? You know, you're producing food, but you, you don't have really control over it. It's like, they'll give you just enough for subsistence and they'll take the rest. Um, and that uh, we need to have ownership over this. I mean, the difference between the only starting initial conditions are, uh, you know, that separated the countries that were truly free and, and the most prosperous long-term, you know, to, starting 200 years ago was whether they had individual ownership of farming, you know, mm. you know, like you had, uh, you had Argentina and the U S started basically the same time, massive land mass, less of wealth. Argentina went the plantation route. You know, people came in as indentured servants to work on these big estates. And then we went with the family farm thing. We even had it inside the U S plantations in the South, 
Virginia was much larger population than us at the, you know, the North in the very beginning, but that dynamism of those individual ownership and that dynamism of that economy by 1860, that was, it was like three to one or four to one population to the South. I mean, it mm-hmm. was, it wasn't even a fair fight. Um, and so uh, you get it right. You generally the benefits and the, the people who are destroying that data, like Europe, destroying value in the future because all products, every single product or service you buy in the future will have that AI, the AI built on your data. And if um, China is like owning it, they're letting the companies buy it, but they or own it and gather anything as long as they control the direction of where it's going. Um, and that uh, we need a mechanism here that's not just privacy destroying the data. Uh, we need a mechanism that we can participate in, in, in how that's used and used to our benefit and that we get economic as well as social benefit from this going forward. And data ownership starts that process. You know, I want a data broker who has a fiduciary duty to, to look out for my best interest going forward. And, and you know, all the data brokers are the ones that are just finding ways to acquire stuff and they're representing their, their own interests or the interests of their clients. Uh, not the people who they're getting the data from. So let's reverse this. Let's, let's rationalize this. Let's get some participation going. Um, there's no, you know, right now that data for the big guys are worth about 400 bucks a year, maybe 500 per American, right? So based on the current trajectory, as this stuff gets into every single work product, as we start to build things that, you know, in every workplace that requires data collection, that could be worth 20,000 bucks in 20 years. So wouldn't you want to be like part owner of that? Whereas if it's not, it's all goes to these global corporations and just gets sucked out of you. So Americans train all of these great AI systems and they go to global corporations and they're locked out of the benefits of that. And those systems kick them out of jobs and kick them out of, you know, make them more and more destitute with each passing year. I'd rather participate in that upswing. Put some needle in her skin 
talking. 